Well, let's, let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 4 provides a record of human degeneration. In the first half of chapter 4, we read of Cain, who committed the first murder, killed his brother Abel. And then in the second half of chapter 4, we read of Cain's descendants, who established the first godless civilization. Cain was unrepentant, and so verse 12, chapter 4, verse 12, we see there that God sentenced Cain to be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth. But Cain refused to live under God's terms. And in an act of defiance, in verse 17, chapter 4, verse 17, he built a city, and to further flaunt his defiance, he called the name of the city after the name of his son. Thus his children were brought up to be immersed in their father's rebellion. Disobedience was foundational to that lineage. In verses 23 and, chapter, uh, verses 23 and 24, we read about Cain's great-great-great-great-grandson Lamech, who boasted that he had savagely killed a young man who had merely wounded him or perhaps even just insulted him. He'd savagely killed him and then he wrote a song to glory in this act and he proceeds to sing one of the verses that said that if someone tried to enact any judgment upon him, he would punish that person 70 times worse than anything that his father Cain should have received. Grandfather Cain. Perhaps surprisingly, these were days of great cultural accomplishments. Lamech's children were gifted individuals, resourceful entrepreneurs, and yet the higher civilization rose technologically, the further it fell into depravity. Lamech's song is the first recorded song in history. It glorifies the violence of the age. The earth became corrupt and filled with such violence. And this is the world, just seven generations from Adam. This is what had become of paradise. But this dark picture is not devoid of hope because in contrast to the line of Cain, a new line was raised up, that is the line of Seth. Chapter 4 verse 25 says, Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son and called his name Seth. For God, said she, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel whom Cain slew. Verse 26, and to Seth, to him also there was born a son. And he called his name Enos, then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Seth and his family were part of a godly remnant. They had a deep awareness about the pravity that was all about them and they had a deep concern that they remain separate from it and have a testimony in the midst of it. And so they began to call upon the name of the Lord. They declared their neediness in corporate prayer. 
They declared his wonders in corporate praise. They proclaimed his excellencies in corporate worship. And into the darkness of chapter 4 shines the light of the last two verses. And with that bright event, we come to chapter 5, which introduces a new section in the book of Genesis. Chapter 5, verse 1, the book of the generations of Adam. That's the second time we've come across a phrase like this in the book of Genesis. The phrase is known as a toledot, and it stands at the beginning of each new section. There are ten such toledots in Genesis, marking out ten sections of the book of Genesis. And each section begins with the phrase, the beginning of the generations of, or the book of the generation of. The first section ran from chapter 2 verse 4 to the end of chapter 4. That's one unit. The second section runs from chapter 5 verse 1, the generations of Adam, through to chapter 6 verse 8, the generations of Noah. That's the next unit. Yes, the sun shines through the gloom at the end of chapter 4. There is hope for the world. The hope is that the good will now outpopulate the bad. And yet, as we move into chapter 5, more dark clouds appear. At first sight, chapter 5 appears to be nothing more than a list of names of interest only to historians and perhaps theologians. But there is a recurring theme which is of profound interest to every single person of humanity. Chapter 5 highlights a devastating problem. For repeatedly throughout the chapter, we have this melancholy phrase, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. One by one, one after another, they died. And the first person in the chapter to die was Adam. We see that in verses 1 to 5. Our first heading today is Adam's funeral. Verses 1 and 2 form a brief introduction to the chapter, which reminds us a lot, does it not, of chapter 1, where we read about Adam's glorious beginning. Three words really stand out here, created, blessed, called. God created Adam. God made Adam in his own likeness. Adam's nature resembled divine God's divine nature. Adam was created perfectly righteous. He was created perfectly holy. Therefore, undoubtedly, he was created perfectly happy. God created and God also blessed him. It's usual for parents to bless their children. And so God blessed Adam, gave him the greatest task imaginable. And in it, he was supremely happy. And God called him. Gave him the name Adam, which means earth, to remind him from whence God had formed him when he then gave him the nobility of breathing his spirit within to him. Created in God's image, blessed beyond measure, called to humble nobility. Adam was all three, but things changed drastically. Adam fell into sin and the image was tarnished. 
And the blessing became a curse. And the dust from which he was called from became the dust that he was destined to return to. Verse 5 says, All the days of Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And I wonder if the world that then was observed a, a minute's silence for the passing of Adam. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. And the reason is because in the house of mourning there are some wonderfully valuable lessons to learn. Adam's death teaches us three things. It teaches us, first of all, that man, man is sinful. If we were to ask the question, why did Adam die? The Apostle Paul gives us the inspired answers. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. Here we see the origin of death. It came by sin. C.H. McIntosh said, Sin snapped asunder the link which bound the creature to the living God. And that being done, he was handed over to the dominion of death, which dominion he has no power whatsoever to escape. Adam died because of his sin. Because of his sin, there was nothing that Adam could do to avert that destination. Adam died because Adam sinned. The second thing we learn from Adam's death is that Satan is deceitful. Back in Genesis chapter 3, God said very plainly to Adam and Eve, if you eat of the fruit of that tree, you will die. In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Satan comes along and said exactly the opposite. That Satan is a liar. Jesus tells us that he was a murderer from the beginning. He abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh the lie, he speaketh of his own. He is a, a liar and the father of it. This is a remarkable statement from Jesus which unveils the devil as only Jesus could do. He is a murderer. Satan is a murderer who kills deliberately. He is a liar who deliberately deceives. And all death on earth, all death on earth is laid at the devil's door. He is responsible for it. He's a mass murderer. He's the murderer of our race. He's the author of death. He's the reason for every graveyard. He hates the human race. The Lord warned Adam and Eve that this murderer was abroad. He gave them a hedge about them to protect them. He gave them his word. He told them, trust and obey. He warned them against opening the gate. Thou shalt surely die. But the devil told them the opposite. The devil is a liar. He abode not in the truth. That takes us back even beyond the Garden of Eden to the time when Lucifer, son of the morning, the anointed cherub, dwelling in the light of God's presence, entertained rebellion in his heart, was cast out of heaven along with the angels that he successfully deceived. There's no truth in him, Jesus said. 
The devil's moral being is distorted. He retains much of his former brilliance of intellect, power of will, but he is warped, he is bent, he is twisted, so that he is incapable of speaking truth. He is the antithesis of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, ye shall not surely die. He said, ye shall be as gods. He's the antithesis of Christ who appears on the scene, full of grace and full of truth. And Satan's the opposite. Brethren, be sober. Brethren, be vigilant. Brethren, be warned. For Satan is surely very active today in overt and covert ways, and we dare not be ignorant of his devices. Never ever think that sin will turn out right. Don't ever believe it. It's a lie of the devil. Flee from temptation. Whatever form, turn it off, put it away, walk away from it, destroy it. Wages of sin is death. And if you go ahead that way, the wages of sin is death. Okay, That's the truth of God's word. Something's going to die if you go that way. And I fear lest by any means, the Apostle Paul said, that as, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so our minds can be corrupted from the simplicity which is in Christ, simple truth of Christ. Adam's death teaches us that man is sinful and Satan is a liar. Thirdly, that God is merciful. Verse 5 tells us that Adam was 930 years of age when he died. It took that long for the sentence of death to catch up with him. Seth and Enos and Canaan and Mahalalil and Jared and Enoch were all still alive at the time. In the day that Adam sinned, he did die spiritually, just as God has said. Fellowship with God was broken, and yet his earthly life was spared. He wasn't consigned immediately to hell. God was merciful. An innocent substitute died in his place. And the blood was shed to provide an atonement for his sin and skins were given to provide a covering for shame. And Adam was banished from the garden, locked out of God's presence. But he was spared the full punishment of his sin. Furthermore, in verse 4, we see that God was merciful also in allowing Adam and Eve to beget not just Seth, but also other sons and daughters as well. And yet, not all consequences of their sin could be avoided. From the day of Adam's disobedience onwards, Adam began dying progressively until at 930 years of age, he died physically. And every day he lived after the fall was by the mercy of God. It was of the Lord's mercies that we, he wasn't consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. 
unto us. Amen? The rest of the chapter tells us about Adam's family, which includes us because we're all descendants of Adam. There are three things we learn about being in Adam's family. Firstly, we are all just like Adam in that we all have a sinful nature. If you look back at verse 3, we read, And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness, after his image, and called his name Seth. Now, if we think back to chapter 1, Adam was originally made in the image and likeness of God. But Adam did not pass that on to Seth. What Adam passed on to Seth and subsequently to all of his descendants is his own image and likeness, which is fallen and corrupt and sinful. And that's why what the psalmist says is also true of us. Conceived in sin, shapen in iniquity. We're all born sinners. We all have a sin nature. We're all made in the image of poor, fallen, sinful Adam. No wonder Jesus said to Nicodemus, Marvel not that I say unto thee, you must be born again. Because we're all born wrong the first time. We're all born in sin, born with Adam's fallen nature. We need to be reborn. Friend, have you been born again? Have you been born again? Have you cried out to the Lord and asked the Lord to cleanse you of your sin and give you a new heart and make you a new creature? All of us have a sinful nature from which we need to be delivered. Secondly, all of us have a terminal condition. All of us have a terminal condition. The godly family of Seth was like a bright light shining through the darkness of chapter 4. Nevertheless, the Sethites' optimism was always clouded because their genealogy continues that repeated depressing phrase, and he died, and he died. Verse 5, Adam lived some 930 years and he died. Verse 8, Seth lived 912 years and he died. Verse 11, it was 905 years for Enos and he died. Verse 14, Canaan lived five years longer but then he died. Verse 17, Mahalalil was the youngest yet 895 years when he died. Verse 20, Jared was 962 and he died. In verse 26, Methuselah had his 967th birthday and he died. Couldn't endure the party. But this phrase occurs eight times in chapter 5. It's three words in English. In Hebrew, it's a resounding single word of abrupt finality at the end of every one of these people. Thus, the family of Seth lived under this double-edged sword of human experience. Life produces hope 
only to see it dashed by the all too real finality of death. And so it has been ever since the fall. In this chapter, chapter Genesis chapter 5, we, we read this, we have this humiliating record of man's weakness, subjugation to the rule of death. He might live for hundreds of years and he might beget sons and daughters, but at last it's recorded and he died. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. And again, it's appointed unto men once to die. Man cannot get over it. He cannot by science or ingenuity or anything else within the realm and the range of his genius, he cannot disarm death of its terrible sting. He cannot by his own energy set aside the sentence of death, although we can do many things to prolong and extend it and uh, provide comfort. But we're powerless to resist. We all have a terminal condition. Kent Hughes says, a great plough furrows the earth, ploughing men and women and children under. As Mike Mason says, this awareness is, quote, like the unfolding of a murder mystery in which we ourselves turn out to be the victim. The day is coming when the earth will not, will not know us. We will be gone. That day came fast for the long-lived patriarchs. At death, life is short for all. Where did it all go, we wonder? Only yesterday I was young and running through the fields. Vast multitudes of people have been born bearing, albeit tarnished, images of God. Originals all so beautiful, full of potential. But they've all been ploughed under. The rains have washed their names from the tombstones. Their bones are no more. Death Death spread its dark cloud over the patriarch's bright hopes. And the cycle went on and on and on. And he died and he died and he died. And so do we. We all do wither and fade as a leaf. Life at best is very brief, like the falling of a leaf. Therefore, brethren, we need to be prepared to meet our God. Are you prepared? Are you prepared? Is your bag packed, as it were, ready to go? Clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And something by way of faithfulness to offer to the Lord as an act of dedication of our lives, devoted for him, whereby we trust that he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. And these may yet be the rewards for our faithful labours. Brethren, are you prepared? Are you ready? For any who don't know Christ as Saviour, death for you is but the doorway to hell. There'll be no salvation then. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to cry out to God in confession of sin and asking forgiveness. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But for those who do know Christ as Saviour, it's absent from the body, present with the Lord. No doubt, no question about that. Perhaps a question about this. Will, it, will that be for you a day of joy? Will it be a day of grief, remorse, regrets? It need not be. Prepare to meet God. 
just like Adam, we all the sinful nature. Just like Adam, we all have a terminal condition. Just like Adam, we all have a gracious God. God was gracious to Adam as he is to all of his descendants. We see God's graciousness as we move through the genealogy. For example, we note that the monotonous refrain, and he died, is broken in the case of Enoch. In verse 24, we're told that Enoch walked with God. And he was not, for God took him. Now this phrase, walk with God, applies to Enoch, and it also applies to Noah. Chapter 6, verse 9. And it describes the closest kind of personal communion with God, as if they're walking alongside God, step by step, along life's way. Now this phrase, walk with God, has to be distinguished from other Old Testament similar references like walking before God or walking after God. And both of those references describe moral uprightness and ethical conduct. Now this expression here, walking with God, certainly implies all of that. But it also refers to a relationship which is all the more intimate. As a matter of fact, it is this expression that some of the minor prophets would use to describe that the way that the priests would enter into the Holy of Holies and relate to God. The book of Hebrews gives us a little bit more light. Hebrews 11 verse 5 says, By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and it was not found because God translated him. For before he had his translation, but before his translation he had this testimony, that he pleased God. Evidently, the intimate fellowship that God enjoyed with Enoch was so precious to the Lord that he chose to deliver Enoch from the pains of death and simply transferred him to continue to walk with him on the higher plane of heaven. It's not uncommon to hear glowing eulogies at funerals. I'm pretty sure some... Visitors to funerals have walked in, sat down and wondered if they're in the wrong place as they've heard the person deceased described in terms that they're certainly not familiar with. We do tend to say nice things about people after they have departed. But the difference between that and Enoch was that people were, able, were, were well able to say nice things about Enoch, like, you know, he really walks with God before he departed because they knew it was true that was the testimony they had before he departed and when we think about the wickedness that was going on in the world at that time that is probably the ultimate human compliment and yet it's more so an indication of God's graciousness the wondrous fact is that by God's grace, and only by God's grace, God's grace can we have a close and intimate relationship with him. It is possible. God is so far above us, yet he desires to condescend and to fellowship with us. And in such marvellous condescension, he reveals himself to us. 
so that he might enter into a relationship with us. And for this purpose, he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the world to bring about a reconciliation. God and sin is reconciled through the work of Christ upon the cross, through the blood of the cross. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. But we can come to him through one me. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And one day soon, in an amazing event known as the rapture, those who are alive and remain will be caught up, similar to Enoch, to be forever with the Lord in the glory of heaven, so that the fellowship that we've enjoyed down here can reach another level, unhindered up there in heaven. In a remarkable Old Testament way, verses 21 to 24, Enoch teaches us that God is gracious and desires our fellowship. Brethren, are you walking with the Lord? Are you walking with the Lord? In verses 25 to 27, we read about Methuselah. Lived 967 years, almost a full millennium, longer than any other human being. His father, Enoch, embedded a prophecy in Methuselah's name. His name means... (coughs) When he dies, it shall come. And you only need to look at the chart on the back of the sheet to uh, you can work out what the it refers to. Throughout all of Methuselah's long life, the conditions on the earth went from bad to worse, but God withheld his hand of judgment because God is of great patience. He is long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish. That's 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. And Peter goes on in talking about this very thing. He says that people at the time of Enoch and Methuselah thought that God's inaction was either an indication of his non-existence or his indifference to the sin that was in the world. But people were wrong on both accounts. It's because God is long-suffering. That's why he defers judgment. That's what Peter goes on to say, an account that the long-suffering of God is salvation. The reason why God is long-suffering is because of salvation. He wants people to be saved. And so in Methuselah, we see that God is patient and defers his judgment. And God's Spirit won't always strive with man. If you continue to resist God, you may lose the opportunity to repent. Boast not thyself of tomorrow. Thou knowest not, not a day, what, knowest not what a day may bring forth. Don't presume upon the patience of God. He never runs out of patience because that's one of his eternal attributes. He's never guilty of impatience, but God will call time at some point. In verses 28 to 31, we read about Lamech, obviously a different Lamech that was in the line of Cain back in chapter 4, verse 28. And Lamech lived 180 and two years and begat a son. 
And he called his name Noah, saying, This same shall comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord cursed. Now, if we read the book of Genesis carefully, one of the things that we discover is the constant using and reusing of words and phrases that have already been introduced. And the language here in this verse of the Lord Jehovah, having cursed the ground and the painful toil that's required to work it. This is all in language that we've seen before in Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. So when Lamech says this, it sounds as if at the birth of Noah, he is hoping that this child, who was in the line of descent from the seed of the woman, is going to bring about a situation where the curse which has been introduced in chapter 3 is going to be rolled back. And this indicates that the hope introduced in Genesis 3.15 is not merely, not only that the serpent's head is going to be crushed and the serpent be defeated, it is also a hope that not only will the wicked one be defeated, but the effects of sin and sin itself, the hope is that these also will be eradicated. And then too, if death is the result of sin, then if there was this hope that sin and death are going to be rolled back, the hope is that sin will actually be undone. Death will be undone. And that is the sort of intimation that we have in this genealogy in the fact that Enoch does not die. He was not found, for God took him. So it would seem that this genealogy here is also reflecting a wider hope, a hope that is stemming from Genesis 3.15. But it's also not just stemming from there, it's beginning to grow and to blossom. It's the hope of triumph. It's a hope for life that is beyond death. And so in this prophecy that Lamech gives, we can almost summarise it as, as if Lamech, Lamech is saying that he's hoping for, in this child, he's hoping this child will be responsible in some way for a new creation. And when we come back to 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter looks at the flood and he talks about the flood and he talks about life after the flood as being a kind of new creation. And Peter's not pulling that just out of nowhere. He's carefully reading the book of Genesis, he's He's, 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 he's trying to pick up the intent of the author. Lamech teaches us that God is faithful and will provide the Saviour, the promised Saviour, who won't only crush the devil, who won't only save us from our sin, but who will ultimately make all things new. And all this brings us to Noah in chapter 6 which tells us about the sin in his days and the worldwide flood of judgment that God is going to bring upon it. And even as the clouds of judgment were gathering in chapter 6 and the clouds of death overshadow chapter 5, we see these rays of hope shining brightly through the gloom. God will protect and God will preserve his believing remnant. Through his providence, 
and through the agency of godly people and in so doing he reveals himself in a way that encourages our hope. He's gracious and desires our fellowship. One day he'll come back and take us to be with him in the Father's house. He is patient and defers his judgment, giving people the opportunity to turn from their sin and to call upon him for salvation, giving us the opportunity to reach others with the gospel. God is faithful. He's promised a saviour. He's provided a saviour who not only crushes the serpent's head but will ultimately make a whole new creation. And this is why Paul says in Romans 15 verse 13 that he is the God of all hope who fills us with joy and peace in believing that we may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the inspired record of historic events. Thank you, Lord, for the way that these things teach us today. And Lord, I do pray that uh, we'd all benefit from the teaching of your word. Uh, Lord, above all, we thank you for the provision of a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is the sum and the substance of all of the scriptures. Every Old Testament prophecy points towards him. Everything that is predicted in the future depends upon Christ ultimately. And so we want to thank you for our glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will one day make all things new, new heaven and new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness, all because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished on the cross. Father, Lord, help us to rejoice in that. And may that good news be something that uh, we feel compelled to share with others. Lord, if there's anyone here today who's not yet saved, Lord, I do pray that today would be the day when they would call upon the name of the Lord. And for we who are saved, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to walk with you not to believe any of the lies of the devil, but to flee temptation and to stay, walk closely with you. And uh, Lord, I pray that uh, in so doing, uh, our testimony might shine forth, uh, even in these darkening days. Uh, we pray all this for Jesus' sake. Amen.